Well, good morning. Good morning. Good morning. It's uh, good to be with you. It's the first time in this particular location, but uh, uh, a number of years ago, um, I have um, spoken in the old uh, building where you used to meet. But good to be uh, with you. Thank you very much for the invitation. And I bring greetings from um, the brothers and sisters in Christ at Emmanuel Baptist in Leeds also. Well, I'm going to be looking this morning at one particular part of Romans uh, chapter 8. So if you have that chapter again, uh, opening your Bibles, that will be helpful. And my title as we zoom in on that particular part of Romans chapter 8 is God's Greatest Guarantee. Happens to be alliterative, that's a, a kind of a bonus really, but it's just a happy accident that it came out that way to some extent. God's Greatest Guarantee. Now most of us are probably familiar in, in general terms with the concept of a, a guarantee or a warranty. Um, if you buy something new, you, you go down to Argos uh, this week and buy a kettle, you might get a one or, or two year guarantee, I guess, or warranty on that new kettle. Um, for, for ourselves, this was something that was on our minds a few years ago when we, we bought what's our current family car. Uh, it's still running, um, but uh, it was back in 2015. Uh, we bought our, our Renault, and uh, part of the reason why we chose that particular car, it was, had a few thousand miles on the clock and was six months old, but it still had most of its manufacturer's warranty left on it, yeah, four-year warranty, um, and uh, we had three and a half years of that left to run. So if we drove the car off and the engine fell out, then we could go back to Renault and say, please fix this, it's not meant to do that. Um, of course... Any such guarantee, any such warranty that you have is limited though, isn't it? It only covers certain things. You're on your own after the, the warranty period has ended. Or if it becomes void for some reason, if you don't use the item in the way that it was supposed to, if you, uh, you know, don't keep uh, a reasonable care of it. In our case with the car again, we bought it, as I say, back in 2015. We're, we're well past that four-year warranty period now. And if the wheels do fall off or if the, the engine does drop out, Renault don't want to know. Well, well they might for a lot of money, but they, they don't want to know uh, for free, at least, in terms of fixing it. We're not going to find the manufacturer rushing to help us. We're on our own. However, the contrast is here in this chapter of Scripture, isn't it? God's promises to us in Christ are rock-solid, unshakable, unable to be voided, never, ever to be forgotten, never to lapse, never to run out. There's not going to come the day that God will direct our attention to some small print in the warranty, as it were, in his guarantee to wriggle out of keeping any of his promises to look after his people and to take them to be with him forever. It's not going to happen. And as I want us to see this morning, God's greatest guarantee to us is Jesus. It's Jesus himself. So to, to give a bit of general context, here in Romans chapter 8, you might know that the Apostle Paul is, is really writing to encourage us uh, as Christians. Uh, writing, of course, to the, the church in Rome at the time, but also uh, to us in God's provision for us uh, with this letter. And he tells us, as we began the reading, that the Holy Spirit helps us in our weakness, even when we don't know what to pray. He reminds us as well that, that God, in God's sovereign care, uh, overarching structuring and ruling of all things, 
that for us as, as believers, all things work together for good. Now, for most of us, we don't really need to be told that what we think of the good things are working for our good, do we? So he's obviously saying that even the, the hard or difficult or unexpected things or turns in our life are used for our good by our Father. And these are all words that are needed by Christians who, who could despair or become discouraged at times. And of course, the much needed encouragement continues in verses like verse 31 and, and this fantastic section from verse 33 down to the end of the chapter in, in what we call verse 39, where, where Paul really, he, he kind of, he effectively says, you name it, God's got it covered. Nothing is going to separate you from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. And, and he's talking height or depth, anything else in all creation, uh, nothing now, nothing that's going to come. Basically, everything, as expansive as you can be. And he shows us that even in the context of possibly deadly opposition for the Christian, we're kept by God. And in all these things, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. So Paul's writing, I think, to encourage us in our walk with Christ. We can always do with more encouragement. I know I can. And I know that you will need it too. Sometimes we're feeling... Uh, when we're feeling low, when we're, we're perhaps feeling downcast or or just worn down by life. For whatever reason, we need a bit of a shot in the arm, don't we? We need waking up from our slumber. Uh, more often, we just, need, we just need to be encouraged. How does the Bible say? Strengthening our weak knees. Putting some uh, steel in our spine, as we might say nowadays. You know, there are some folks in, in almost every church, I don't know this congregation uh, obviously very well, but there are some folks in just about every church who are encouragers, that have a ministry of encouragement. Some folks like Barnabas, as we know from the New Testament, whose, whose real name was Joseph, which is a very, very good name, but of course he was given, wasn't he, by the apostles, the name of Barnabas, which means son of encouragement. Now that's a great name, isn't it? That's a great name. We need more encouragers, and we always need to be um, give, giving more encouragement to one another as well as we walk through this life together. So we're looking today at Romans 8, verse 32, especially. This is my favourite verse in the Bible. You can't preach every week on your favourite verse, of course. You've soon run out of verses. Um, and I won't be saying everything that there is to say on it, even just looking, focusing our thoughts mainly around this verse. But I do hope that I can show you at least some of the tremendous encouragement that this verse, uh, verse 32, has been to me over the years that uh, the Lord has been walking with me. Now, verse 32, you might have noticed, is, is actually a question, of course, uh, technically speaking, but it's like the verse before, verse 31, it's, it's really a rhetorical question. It's a question that's asked for effect. It's a question that's asked to make us stop and think, and then wonder in amazement at what God is like, and the wonderful things that he's done for us. He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? Now there's a wonderful gospel logic to this verse, isn't there? That just kind of steamrolled us through arguments, really. 
if God didn't spare his own son, Jesus, if God didn't spare his own son, Jesus, what will he hold back from us? What will he hold in reserve after giving us Jesus? And the answer, of course, to the question is nothing. Nothing. Of course, he will also, with Jesus, graciously give us all things. So I want to draw out four main encouragements that we can take from this verse this morning. Firstly, God shows that he's on our side when he gave us his son. God shows that he's on our side when he gave us his son. So the immediate context, of course, of this thought in verse 32 is the, the, the sentence before in verse 31. Um, so let's read them both together. What then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? So Paul is looking back really on, on all the wonderful truths about what God is like and what he's done for us, not just in the immediate verses and, and words beforehand, I think, but also effectively all that he's been bringing out in the, in the previous chapters, in the letter up to this point. And he's delighting that God has shown himself to be on our side. When he could have written us off, when he could have uh, screwed up his creation and, and thrown it away and started again, he didn't, did he? And he sent his son, the Bible tells us, to die for the ungodly. And as, as Paul has already pointed out earlier in this letter, while we were still weak, not when we were ready, but when he was ready. And when we're made right with God through faith, in Jesus Christ, through trusting in Jesus Christ, and we now have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. And at the start of this chapter, he tells us, there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. You're not going to be written off. You're not going to be condemned if you are Christ and he is yours. And he says, remember what God has done. Well, if he's on our side, then who's going to stand against us? Who is going to be able to stand against us? God is for us and not against us. I think back to the um, the times at school as a, a young lad, certainly um, through all of my kind of high school and teenage years, I would play football almost every single lunchtime, unless it was such atrocious weather or I was seriously injured or something like that. I was never brilliant at it. But um, if any of you did something similar to that when you were younger, you would have experience of uh, a group of you, um, you know, sort of lining up on the on the football pitch or where you were going to play, and and then you have, you'd take turns picking teams. Usually, you get a couple of captains, and and uh, you, you maybe maybe they pick their mates first or something like that. But then occasionally there would be that that really good kid, that kid that played for the local amateur team or, or junior team or whatever who was like Pele or, you know, Cristiano Ronaldo or, or, or Messi or something like that. And uh, it says, can I join in? And then you're like, oh, we want him on our team. We're going to win if he's on our team. If you got him on your team, then you knew that the other team didn't stand a chance. This guy actually knew how to do all those fancy things with the football and, and shoot straight. You see, if God is for us, then we're safe. If God is for us, then we know the final outcome of our battle in this life, of our journey, our struggle 
in this life. And of course the point is that God proves he is for us by not sparing his own son, but by giving him up to die for us all. So brothers and sisters, God shows that he is on our side when he gave us his son. Secondly, I want to say that God shows us his love when he gave us his son. We could say much, much about this, so much about this, uh, more than I could ever say. But I'll just, I'll touch upon this topic briefly. As God says to his people in the Old Testament, I have loved you with an everlasting love. Therefore, I have continued my faithfulness to you. Jeremiah 31, verse 3. Ultimately, God's love and faithfulness have been shown in sending his son into the world to live the perfect life and to die the perfect death for us. What's the most famous verse in the Bible? In our day, surely it has to be, for God so loved the world that he gave his only son, that whoever believes in him should not perish, but have eternal life. That might be the most well-known, it might be one that, that people have heard even outside the church at times, but it doesn't get old, does it? The tarn- you know, the, the shine doesn't tarnish or wear off. That never gets old. God sent his son that we might live and not die. And to really understand what love is, we need to get that clear picture from the Bible of ourselves as sinners deserving punishment, sinners warring against God, fighting tooth and nail against God, and yet sinners for whom Christ died. I won't sing it now, but perhaps some of you remember that song, I Want to Know What Love Is, um, from, uh, from a few years back. Well, the Apostle John tells us in 1 John 4 what love is. Beloved, let us love one another, for love is from God. And whoever loves has been born of God and knows God. Anyone who does not love does not know God, because God is love. In this, the love of God was made manifest among us, that God sent his only Son into the world so that we might live through him. In this is love, not that we have loved God, but that he loved us and sent his Son to be the propitiation for our sins. And that word propitiation there, meaning that sacrifice that turns away God's anger from our sins, because Christ has taken that upon himself. As someone, uh, one of the commentators, Leon Morris, said about this passage, it means that he loves, God loves, not because he finds objects worthy of his love, not because you and I are lovely, but because it's his nature to love, because of who he is, not who we are. Uh, Leon Morris says, his love for us depends not on what we are, but on what he is. He loves us because he's that kind of God. Because he's love. So let me just say, we can take heart today. We can be encouraged today because Christ's sacrifice shows us God's gracious and loving heart for us. So God, secondly, God shows us his love when he gave us his son. Thirdly, God gave us his best when he gave us his son. God gave us his best when he gave us his son. 
You know, the Bible brings home to us in, in many different ways that God's grace towards us in Christ is, is actually quite shocking. It's actually quite outrageous. It's amazing. It's wonderful to be on the receiving end of it, for sure. But it's also quite staggering. It's, it's quite surprising. It's unexpected at times. It, it takes us by surprise. It's certainly not what we deserve. We, if you're a Christian, you, you, you realise that fundamental truth. But it's often not what we expect as well. And if we try to limit God's goodness, if we, uh, towards ourselves or towards others, if we try to sort of put him in a box and, and, and say, you can't do that, God, that's not allowed. We'll, we'll quickly find that God will not let himself be put in a box, if you like, by us. He, he won't let his goodness be restrained. Think of Jonah running away from Nineveh and the mission that God had for him to preach a warning of destruction there. And why did he run away? It's because he knew God was, quote, a gracious God and merciful, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and relenting from disaster. He ran not because he was afraid of Nineveh, but because he was afraid of who God was and how gracious God was. And he didn't agree with God showing grace and mercy upon that awful pagan people, he thought. So God's grace towards us is unexpected and and shocking and over the top and extravagant. God gave us his best when he gave us his son, Jesus. God doesn't fall into what I would call that, that Christmas present syndrome. Do you know that situation where you, you think you've got to buy a present for someone, but you, maybe you don't like them that much or you don't know them that well and, and you think, what's the, what's the least I can get away with? You know, what's the minimum? Uh, can, it, can it be a voucher or, or what's the kind of least I can spend or least effort that I can make? I don't really want to deal with it. How can I get away with it with the least kind of expense or suffering or, or trouble? In a, it doesn't happen quite so often nowadays in church or a lot of churches, but you might call it as well the, the kind of offering plate syndrome. When, you know, the offering plate's being rattled in church in front of someone and they, and they think, well, oh, I've, I've got to put something in. I don't, you know, I don't look like a total Scrooge. But you don't really want to. And, and so you, you give the lowest gift you can possibly get away with. But our Heavenly Father doesn't work like that, does he? He breaks all of those rules that, that we kind of live by at times. He goes all in with the best that he can give, his own son, Jesus Christ. When he gave us Jesus, he showed that he doesn't hold back from us, but he gives us his best. And God gives to us graciously as well. He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all. How will he not also with him graciously give us all things? He's not a Scrooge who's, who's kind of, you know, barely able to open his, his wallet or purse or whatever. One of, one of my other favourite verses in the Bible is 2 Corinthians 9. God loves a cheerful giver. Do you know that one? God loves a cheerful giver. And why is that? Why does God love a cheerful giver? It's not because the church roof needs fixing, is it? Because God Himself, well, I don't know about you, <laughs> it's because God Himself is, of course, a cheerful giver, isn't He? He gives graciously without restraints. He gives us His best. His giving and generosity doesn't need to be dragged out of Him. 
unwillingly. And with him, with Jesus, in verse 32, we, we get everything else, we're told. How will he not also, with him, graciously give us all things? So as Christians, as, as those who trust in the Lord Jesus Christ, who have put their hope in him, we receive all of God's benefits in Christ, to use the language of the, the New Testament. We don't have time to, to, to again, look at, uh, into it now in any depth, but think of all of the language in the New Testament of union with Christ, the in him, the, the with him language. For a few examples, Ephesians 1 verse 3 Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. A couple of quotes from 2 Corinthians 5, verse 21. This is again in the, the top ten verses, I think. For our sake he made him to be sin, who knew no sin, that's Christ, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. In him. And 2 Corinthians 1, 20. For all the promises of God find their yes in him. That is why it is through him that we utter our amen to God for his glory. And, and we could think much more upon that theme of union with Christ. One of the great themes of the New Testament, isn't it? Of being united with Christ. So close that God doesn't even think of us. Uh, as being separate to him. But to, to sum it up, the word of God tells us that we're not individuals anymore. We're not free agents in that sense as Christians, each on our own. We are in Christ. We're, we're covered with his righteousness, bound to him forever. He is ours and we are his. And that's the way that God the Father would have it. So God gave us his best when he gave us his son. And fourthly, God promises to give us all things because he gave us his son, which includes all that we need right now. In other words, everything that we need to, to get through this life. So Charles Spurgeon has a wonderful comment on this verse, uh, verse 32. Um, I'm going to read this. I'll, I'll, I'll explain it slightly as we go along, um, in case you're not familiar with Spurgeonisms. Um, but he, he says this of verse 32. If this is not a promise in form, it is in fact, so the, stop there, he's basically saying, grammatically speaking, this isn't a promise, verse 32, as we've said, it's really a rhetorical question, but really, it is a promise, if you think about it. So if this is not a promise in form, it is in fact, indeed, it is more than one promise, it is a conglomerate of promises. It is a mass of rubies and emeralds and diamonds with a nugget of gold for their setting. It is a question which can never be answered so as to cause us any anxiety of heart. What can the Lord deny us after giving us Jesus? If we need all things in heaven and earth, he will grant them to us. For if there had been a limit anywhere, he would have kept back his own son. Will we have faith? Will you have faith to ask God for all that you need today? However great, however small it may be. Because we believe his implicit promise given to us in giving up his son for us. 
We don't have to twist God's arm to, to force him or, or convince him to work for us and to provide for us because we have this promise that he will provide for us because he's given us Jesus, his son. Otherwise, he wouldn't have given us Christ if he was going to hold anything back. And perhaps like, like me in the past, you've, you've tried to construct your prayers and, and, and be artful in the way, the words that you use and the, and the way that you structure your prayers perhaps so as to convince God in the, the most persuasive way possible that you, you really do need that thing or you really do need that, that thing uh, going away or, or fixing in your life. And you thought that perhaps because of the way that you've asked, you might meet with more success in winning him over. But this is the point here in this chapter. We see that God is for us already. He's already on our side and he's proved this by giving us Jesus. So we can trust God for our material needs, therefore. Are you worried about the the rising bills? I think January the 1st for many of us has brought another slight rise at least in our energy bills. Who would have thought three or four years ago that our energy bills would be the, the crazy levels that they are at the moment? And inflation going up and up. Well, if you're concerned about those things, then take it to God in prayer. He knows and he will provide what you need. He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? Think about when Jesus is urging us not to worry about the necessities of life in Matthew chapter 6. And what does he say? He says, look at the birds of the air. They neither sow nor reap nor nor gather into barns, and yet your heavenly Father feeds them. Are you not of more value than they? It's a strange thing to have to say, but yes, you are of more value than a bird. There are people in the world today who don't believe that, actually. But yes, yes, you are of more value than birds, because you're made in the image of God. And if you're a believer, you're bought by the precious blood of Christ. Here's the ultimate proof that you're more of more value than the birds and can trust God for your necessities. He did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all. So we can trust him for our material needs and we can also trust God for our spiritual needs. And Jesus encourages us greatly, I think, in this respect in in Luke 11, when he he tells the parable of the man going at midnight to his friend uh, to ask for three loaves, because that man's just had uh, another friend arrive on a journey late, and and he hasn't got any food to set before him. And of course, they didn't have the 24-hour petrol station or Tesco down the end of the road, did they, to, to pop out and get some food. And so he's knocking on this guy's door and the, and the friend that's in bed says, leave me alone, all my family are asleep. And, but the guy just keeps on asking, doesn't he? He just keeps on knocking. No, I, I, need, I need something. And so with his persistence, he gets up for his friend and he gives him all that he needs. And Jesus says, and I tell you, ask and it will be given to you. Seek and you will find. Knock and it will be opened to you. For everyone who asks receives, and the one who seeks finds, and to the one who knocks it will be opened. What father among you, if his son asks for a fish, will instead of a fish give him a serpent? Or if he asks for an egg, will give him a scorpion? If you then, who are evil, 
know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will the Heavenly Father give the Holy Spirit to those who ask him? Jesus says, in effect, just ask. Just ask. And you will be amazed at what God will give. So remember the everlasting goodness of our overwhelmingly, ridiculously, extravagantly generous God. He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for his all. How will he not also with him graciously give us all things? So we need God to give us today our daily provisions, don't we? Food, air to breathe, strength for another day on this earth. We need inward peace. We need wisdom. We need faith. We need, of course, his blessed Holy Spirit working in us. And we need much more besides. And God promises to give us all that we need right now in this life because he gave us his son. But along with that, we can say that God promises to give us all that we need for eternity, for eternal life. A little earlier in Romans 8, we have this reminder of the Christian's hope of glory. So in verse 18 and 19 onwards, For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us. For the creation waits with eager longing for the revealing of the sons of God. And if we skip forward a few verses to to verse 23, and, and not only the creation, but we ourselves who have the first fruits of the Spirit groan inwardly as we wait eagerly for adoption as sons, the redemption of our bodies. For in this hope we were saved. Now hope that is seen is not hope. For who hopes for what he sees? But if we hope for what we do not see, we wait for it with patience. So the Christian life has a goal. It has an end, which is to be with Christ. And in God's great scheme of redemption for the world, even the grave will not keep us from him. Even death will be defeated. Rather, as those who have the the spirit in us, we look forward to the redemption of our bodies, our, our resurrection with glorious bodies like Christ when he returns. With souls and bodies fit for heaven, ready for heaven through his work for us. Now, my friends, if if you will trust in Jesus Christ right now, even today, you too can have that assurance of everlasting life with him in heaven. There are joys and delights that we can confidently look forward to in this presence that we we don't even know the half of and we can be certain of it too. As Spurgeon has said, what can the Lord deny us after giving us Jesus? So God promises to give us all things because he gave us his son. All that we need right now and all that we need for eternity and for eternal life because he gave us his son. I saw a film um, fairly recently called 13 Lives. I don't know if any of you have seen that. It's about the, the rescue, the true story of the Thailand cave rescue that happened a few years ago. Perhaps you remember it on the, uh, on the news. On the 23rd of, of June 2018, 12 uh, boys and their coach from a junior football team in Thailand, they, they entered uh, a local cave complex called the Tam Luang Cave 
And they became trapped there. The, the monsoon rains came uh, heavy and early. Um, and it flooded the entrance to the cave that they were in and, and many of the tunnels uh, which were below that level. And it left them stranded on a, a rock shelf in a, a little chamber one and a half miles from the entrance to the cave. Now they, they 